0: This is what the Lord says, Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. Hello, friends, and welcome back. Today I'll be talking about God's character and his promises. This will be the third in this series. And before I get to that, I'd like to mention something, a conversation that came up last week. I was talking to one of my listeners about my series on the covenants, and she expressed a concern that I think is perhaps or most likely shared by some of our listeners, if not quite a few. And that is regarding the story that I told of the British pastor, David Paulson, who, when he took a church in England and saw that painted behind the pulpit were the Ten Commandments, He painted over them and said that the Ten Commandments have no place in a new covenant church. And my friend expressed concern about that because it seemed a bit extreme, I think, and also the fact that I mentioned uh, when I talked about it, that most of the commandments are also reaffirmed in the New Testament, all except for the Sabbath law. I'll talk about that in just a second. I understand fully my friend's concern about that story. Because I shared that same concern when I first heard the story. But then I've thought about it quite a bit more. And I think that we, as followers of Jesus under the new covenant, should be very careful not to give any indication to people that we are under the Mosaic law, because we are not under the Mosaic law. And having the Ten Commandments posted in a church or like I mentioned, engraved in stone in front of a church, can very explicitly give the idea that we are under that law, that that law applies to us. And the scriptures are so very clear that we are not under the Mosaic law. And I'll tell you why this is really important. And it didn't sink into me until actually pretty recently. When God gave the law, he demanded 100% obedience. He demanded that his people keep every law perfectly. We tend to think of laws as kind of suggestions about right behavior, or, well, if I didn't keep one, uh, you know, it's okay, there's another nine, (laughs) that if I kept all of these laws but one, that's okay, that's still a pretty good percentage of obedience. But God said, under the Mosaic law, you must keep that law perfectly. Now, we use this in English in America for sure. If we're driving too fast and we get pulled over by a policeman and he gives us a ticket, we would say, yeah, I broke the law. We don't say I broke a law. And you couldn't defend yourself to a policeman by saying, well, I know I was speeding, but I kept all the other laws. I didn't murder anybody, so you should give me a break well, no, you broke the law. And I've heard this image used to communicate what the law is like. It's like a string of pearls. And if you break that necklace at any point, all of the pearls fall. And you would say, oh, I broke my necklace. You wouldn't say, oh, I broke just one part of the necklace. No, they all cling together. They all hold together. In God's view, if you break any little part of that mosaic law, then you've broken the entire law. And the Bible says that he gave that law to reveal his righteousness, how perfect he is. He's absolutely perfect. And we'll talk soon about his justice. He demands perfection. And under the Mosaic law, perfection was demanded, not only for the 10 commandments, but for the other 603. Perfect obedience. And because people could not keep all of those laws, there was a system of sacrifice put in place to cover those sins, but we're not under that system anymore. Now, there is one sacrifice that has been made, the perfect sacrifice in Christ, and he said himself that he was there to bring in the new covenant in his blood, and under the new covenant, God promises to renew our spirit To remove our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. He promises to put his spirit within us. And that's not the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law is obsolete, it's passing away. We are not under that. And that's why I think it's really important that we shouldn't have anything in our churches that would lead people to think that we're still under that system. Now, I want to talk about the Sabbath Law because it is not restated under the new covenant. As a matter of fact, in Hebrews, it says that as long as it's called today, we should make every effort to enter into the Sabbath rest of God. In the New Testament, we're told that really we shouldn't feel like we have to honor one day above another, that there are any special days. I mean, we're free to have celebrations on certain days or holy days, but really we are not under any obligation and that particularly applies to the Sabbath law. Well, why is it that God is saying to us now under the new covenant, the Sabbath law doesn't apply? Well, I think it's because he wants us all every day to be within that Sabbath rest, where we cease from striving, we cease from laboring, and we let his power work within us. I'll talk about this pretty soon as we talk about grace, that under the new covenant, we don't just take one day out of seven as a day of rest. Every day is a day of rest from striving, from struggling. Every day is a day that we turn our hearts to the Lord, not just one out of seven. It's seven out of seven. That's God's desire for us. As long as it's called today, we must make every effort to enter into the Sabbath rest of God. We really need to think about it. It's completely different from the Mosaic law. It's completely different because not only is God calling us to make an effort to enter into his Sabbath rest every day, he says, I'm going to be working within you by my spirit to give you both the desire to take a Sabbath rest every day and to give you the power to be obedient. That's the new covenant. And we shouldn't do anything that would lead believers to think that we're under the Mosaic law. The law is good. It's great. It shows God's righteousness. The new covenant is better. Read the book of Hebrews and underline every time the word better is said in that book. The law was good, but boy, this new covenant through Christ is so much better because there's freedom. There is real freedom. So I wanted to share those thoughts for those of you like myself who've had concerns about this idea of painting over the Ten Commandments in a New Covenant church. Most people, including myself up until recently, don't really think very deeply about the difference between the Mosaic Law, the Old Covenant, and the New Covenant the scriptures are really very clear. And as I said in that series of talks, this was perhaps the biggest issue in the early church. Do Gentiles need to come under the Mosaic law in order to be followers of the Messiah? And all of those Jewish leaders in the early church said, absolutely not. Absolutely not. And that's addressed in the book of Acts. It's addressed in the book of Romans. It's addressed in the book of Galatians. It's addressed in the book of Hebrews. It was a very important issue back then. And it's a real important issue for us now because there can be a real tendency to mix the old covenant thinking with the new covenant thinking. And God said in Jeremiah, there's a new covenant coming that's not like the giving of the Mosaic law. God himself says the new covenant is not at all like the Mosaic law. The law was given as a teacher to show us that we need a Savior, to point us to Jesus, and God sent Jesus to usher in this new covenant by his blood. Okay, well, I guess you can tell I could talk about this quite a bit more. I welcome your feedback about it, and I do hope that you're blessed and encouraged. This is not just some theological conversation, it really is the point where human beings understand. God's desire and how he wants to relate to us. That's what covenants are. God revealing to man how he relates to us. and He has different covenants, and some are in effect forever. Some are in effect for just a limited amount of time. If you haven't listened to that series I did on the covenants, I encourage you to go and listen to it. I think it would be helpful. It's been very helpful to me because as the scriptures say, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. We're no longer under that law. All right, so let's move on now to a discussion about God's character and his promises. As I mentioned earlier, this is number three in this series, and I think it is so very important for God's people to meditate on his character and on his promises. Well, by way of introduction. I want to talk about why it's important for us to think about God's character and His promises. And there is a question that comes to mind, and I often think about this. And when I talk to people, it comes up pretty often. Where is our faith? In what do we put our faith? Well, our faith should not be in our ability to understand or to do God's will. Our faith should not be in our ability. That's the important thing, because we're going to fail. If you think you're not able to hear from the Lord, then you may be putting your faith in yourself. Well, of course, you're weak. And of course, I am too. We all are. But we should not put our faith in our abilities. We should not limit God based on our own limitations. Our faith should be in God, in his character, in his promises, in the way that he has revealed himself to us. Because his character and his promises, his truth, these things never change. They are eternal and they're dependable. Even when we're faithless, he remains faithful. And we need to put our faith in him. Of course, we're going to fail, but we can depend upon him. We put our faith in him. And we don't really put our faith in his attributes or his teachings. We put our faith in him. We don't live a faith of beliefs in a series of moral teachings we live a life of faith in an eternal God who is and is active. Well, first, I'll talk about God's character. And this is the mental and moral qualities that are distinctive to an individual. What defines God's character? Well, first of all, it doesn't matter what we think about God. A lot of people all through time have expressed what their thoughts are about how God ought to be and religions have been created because humans layer their ideas about God onto God and create gods that they would worship. You think about the Greek and Roman gods, they're basically humans with all these failings, but they have supernatural powers and maybe eternal life. But they're basically humans. Other religions will carve gods and worship mute wood or stone. The pygmies in Congo, I've mentioned that people group before. They worship the spirits of the forest. They're animists. They think there must be spirits everywhere, and so they just worship everything and give sacrifices to the trees, the spirits in the trees, or the spirits in anthills. I know a man who was a priest of a cult of an anthill. Have I told that story? I'll tell it again sometime. My point is, it doesn't matter what we think about God. What's important is how does he reveal himself? And where do we see that? Well, that's in Scripture. And the question is, what does Scripture reveal about his character? And what promises do we find in the Scriptures? And we need to have ears to hear what he is saying about himself. I'll review some of the things that I said earlier. If you haven't listened to those first two in this series, I encourage you to go back and listen to them. In the first talk, I mentioned these characteristics of God. One is that he loves to bring order from chaos. He's a creative God, and he brings order from chaos. That's a part of his character. I dare say he loves to do that. That's the story of creation, and that's the story of the human heart. When we are in the middle of chaos, he wants to bring order. Our God is a God of order. He's not a God of disorder. He's a God of peace. Our God is a redeemer. He loves to redeem. He loves to redeem the time. He loves to redeem our lives. He is a redeemer. He loves it. And our God brings life from death. He brings order from chaos. He redeems. And he brings life from death. That's his character. And that's why we can have so much hope in him, not hope in ourselves my goodness, we can't bring life from death, but he can. I also spoke about how wise he is and how faithful he is and how loving he is. Not only is God loving, the Bible says he is love. I think sometimes, and I've mentioned it, that God's love can be overemphasized in the modern church. And that's because human beings right now seem to be very hedonistic And we like to hear about how much we are loved. So we got to be careful about that, that we don't take this message of God's love and use it to gratify ourselves, to make us feel good about ourselves. And yet, God reveals himself as the God of love. Boy, and that is in stark contrast to the other gods in the world that people worship. Our God is a loving father. He's Abba. He is really a loving dad. Well, today I'd like to talk about three more parts of his character. And I hope I can cover this pretty well. We'll see. So many people have so many different thoughts about these things. And I'll share some. Of course, can't cover all the ground all the time. But today I want to talk about his justice, his mercy, and his grace. These three parts of his character that are linked together but are very different from one another. As I said, there are many different ways to think about this, but his justice is when we get what we deserve. God's mercy means that we do not get what we deserve, and God's grace is when we get what we do not deserve. Let me say that again, because these are all parts of God's character, and he is 100% just, he's 100% merciful, and he's 100% graceful. God is just, and merciful, and graceful. Justice is when we get what we deserve. Mercy is when we do not get what we deserve. And grace is when we get what we do not deserve. So first I'll talk about God's justice, when we get what we deserve. I want to remind you that God does not show favoritism. When he judges, he judges rightly. And hundred percent, he is hundred percent pure, he's a hundred percent righteous. He judges completely, and he doesn't show favoritism. So I'll read a few scriptures that talk about the justice of God, His character. In Genesis chapter 18, we read something about God's character. Far be it from you, referring to God, to do such a thing as this: to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you, God. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? God is the judge of all the earth. And not only that, of course, all of creation. Nehemiah chapter 9 says, you, God, are just in all that has befallen us. Well, That's a big statement. All the things that have befallen the nation of Israel in the times of Nehemiah and God was just in everything. Psalm 99, verse 4, the king's strength also loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. In Romans chapter 1, Paul mentions the righteous judgment of God, that God is a righteous judge. And Peter mentions in 1 Peter chapter 1, Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Amen. We have a father, which is great. He's our dad. And he judges each person's work impartially. So we need to be really mindful of that. God is the ultimate judge over the lives and the actions of men. And there is a lot of injustice in this world. People will lie and cheat and steal and kill, and they seem to get away with it. True justice is not given here on earth, but we have a judge. And in the eternal heavenly realm, there is true justice, and there is a judgment day. In the end, each man will receive his just deserts at the hands of a God who cannot be persuaded or bribed. That's going to be hard on some people because they thought perhaps something like, well, there are 10 commandments and I kept six of them. That ought to be a passing grade, but it's not for God. Our avenue to God the Father is through Jesus and the work that he's done on our behalf. And God cannot be persuaded and he cannot be bribed. When there are evil acts, when sin occurs, justice demands that there is a penalty. Remember, God does not forgive sin unless it's been paid for. Well, hallelujah, there's a judgment day coming when everything is going to be set right. So God is just, eternally, completely, righteously just. He's also merciful, and that is when we do not get what we deserve. Psalm chapter 6, verse 4 Return, O Lord, deliver oh, save me for your mercy's sake. Hebrews chapter four, let us therefore come boldly to this throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Well, in a minute, I'll talk about grace and here we see mercy and grace together. We can come boldly before God's throne because it's a throne of grace. It's not a throne of judgment. It's a throne of grace and we obtain mercy there at God's throne. God is merciful. Ephesians chapter 2 says, God is rich in mercy. Amen. He is rich in mercy. And in Titus chapter 3, we read, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Boy, look at that two parts of the new covenant. The washing of regeneration, which is when God said, I'm going to clean up your spirit. I'll renew your spirit. And the second part of this scripture says, the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Which is God saying, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. And we have not been saved because of any work that we've done, but it's according to God's mercy. He is so merciful. We do not get what we deserve. And Peter, again in 1 Peter chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a loving hope through the resurrection of Christ Jesus from the dead. Boy, amen. According to his mercy, we've been born again. Since God's justice is satisfied in Jesus, God is free to show mercy to all those who have chosen to follow him. Remember, we enter into this covenant by faith, just as Abram did. His faith was credited to him as righteousness. And now, since God's justice is completely satisfied in Jesus, God is free to show us mercy if we will come to him. And God's mercy will never end because it is a part of God's nature. It's a part of his character. God's mercy never ends. And mercy is the way that God desires to relate to mankind. James says in chapter two, judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I'm just so impressed with these people who wrote the scriptures, the life they lived and the wisdom that God has given them. Look what James says. Judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. That's a caution for us, isn't it? We need to be a merciful people. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Amen. And yet people choose to despise or ignore God. It was common in the early church, and it's common now. And if they despise or ignore God, then they don't have access to God's mercy or his grace. And I'll talk about grace now. There are a lot of different definitions of grace and there's so much that can be said and people have different ideas about it. Grace is when we get what we do not deserve. And I have a few quotes here about grace. What is grace? Uh, One person said, grace is the love and mercy of God given to us by God because God desires us to have it and not necessarily because of anything that we've done to earn it. So grace is the love and mercy of God given to us. Another quote here is that grace is favor, the free and undeserved help that God gives us to respond to his call to become children of God, adoptive sons, partakers of the divine nature and of eternal life. So this person said that grace is favor, free and undeserved, it's help that God gives. Someone else has said grace is generous, free, and totally unexpected and undeserved. One phrase that you may hear is that grace is unmerited favor. Well, that's a good definition, but it's not all that grace is because grace is not only unmerited favor, it's also power. And I say this because Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. That's what Paul is saying. Not only is grace unmerited favor when we get what we do not deserve and we haven't earned it, no, grace is power. Grace in us makes us who we are in God, and this grace has an effect and we can work hard, but only because of the grace that's with us. I think this reflects back to my earlier comments about entering into the Sabbath rest of God, that we, in and of ourselves, rest from our striving, but the grace of God that is in us is the power to do his will daily. Boy, that's the new covenant. It's for freedom that Christ has set you free. He has set you free to make an effort to enter into a Sabbath rest every day, and he has given you his grace by his Spirit to have power to do his will every day. We should be sailboats, not motorboats. We'll hear a few more scriptures that talk about the grace of God. Psalm 145 says, The Lord is righteous in all his ways. He's gracious in all his works. Romans chapter 5, we read, and this is verses 15, 20, and 21. But the gift of God is not like the trespass. For if many died by the trespass of one man, which is Adam, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? The law was added so that the trespass might increase. It's a little bit of a complicated idea there. The law was added so that the trespass might increase. The law was given to show us how sinful we are when we line up against God's perfection. So the law was added so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Where sin is increased, grace increases all the more. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul writes, but to each of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Look at that. Each of us is given grace. That's the gift of God. And I'll return back again to something that I quoted earlier in Hebrews chapter 4. Let us therefore come boldly to this throne of grace, that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Here we see that it's a throne of grace, and we can find grace that helps us in our times of need. When we speak of God's grace, we speak of his wonderful gifts, like salvation, that no man deserves, but God grants anyway. John chapter 1 says, the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Amen. We need to remember that God is just, he's merciful, and he's gracious. All of those things are parts of his character, and all of those things are eternal. Mercy triumphs over judgment, and we have access to God's throne of grace through Christ. Well, now I want to turn to God's promises. And just as I said, grace is power. His promises have power. One of my favorite scriptures is found in 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires let me underscore what peter is saying here his power gives us everything that we need and he has called us because of his own glory and goodness and through his glory and his goodness he has given us promises that are great and precious and through these promises we may participate in the divine nature. Boy, that's the new covenant, to actually participate in the divine nature through his promises. Well, here are a few promises that I spoke about earlier, and then I'll move on to some new ones. The scripture, of course, is full of promises, the promises of God. Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. That's a promise from God. In Romans, we read that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, Who have been called according to his purpose. That's a promise. John chapter 8. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you really are my disciples, and then you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That is a beautiful promise. Of course, if a person does not hold to the teachings of Jesus, that person will continue in bondage and is headed for destruction. But the Lord said, If you hold to my teaching, then you're going to know the truth, and the truth will set you free. I think I've mentioned it before. I need to do a series of teachings on the ifs of Jesus, (laughs) because God's promises often have conditions, and he doesn't promise everything to everybody, and he doesn't promise that everybody will participate in his promises. His promises have conditions. Here's another one from James. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Amen. Matthew chapter six, Jesus said, when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. And then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. What a beautiful promise. If we will actually go into our room and close the door and pray to our father, then he'll see what's done in secret and he'll reward us if we'll do it. Now I'll move on to a few promises that I haven't mentioned before. James chapter 4, and this scripture ties together his grace and his promises. James says, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think the scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? but he gives us more grace. And this is why the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And um, that's a quote from Proverbs chapter three, continuing what James says, submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. James reveals these promises of God. If we resist the devil, he will flee from us. What a promise. That's the way things work. <laughs> If we resist the devil, he will flee from us. Keep resisting. Submit yourselves to God and resist the devil. Amen. That's a promise. You want to overcome the works of the devil? Resist. You have an evil thought into your mind? Resist and say, Lord Jesus, give me the grace now to stand against this evil thought. You have a desire to do something wrong? Resist. Resist temptation. Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world, Becomes an enemy of God. Well, let us not be friends with the world. Who wants to be an enemy of God, my goodness? We need to submit to God, not resist Him. And we need to resist the devil and not submit to Him. Amen? (laughs) Here I sit recording and I just said amen, expecting you to say amen back to me, which is all right wherever you are. I know that one listener listens while she's out running in the morning. I think it's probably okay to say amen while you're running. In 1 John, John writes, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Boy, what a beautiful promise, huh? If we'll, here's another if. <laughs> if we confess our sins, he is faithful, and he is just, and he will forgive us our sins, and not only will He forgive us our sins, He'll purify us from every unrighteousness. That's a beautiful promise. It doesn't depend on our ability to be forgiven, to earn His forgiveness, or to be purified. We don't purify ourselves, we can't. If we confess our sins, if we admit that we are going against God's will, because of His faithfulness, He promises to forgive, and to purify. Boy, what a wonderful Father. What a great God. And as we walk in that love, it just drives out fear. We can be reverent, and we can recognize his power and his authority, and we can boldly come to that throne of grace. Well, I want to say that God also promises judgment. We need to keep this in mind because there's a lot of teaching in the church right now that says God loves us unconditionally, which can sound very much like there's no judgment that because his love is unconditional, no matter what we do, he has to accept us into his kingdom, and he won't judge us harshly, but we know that's not true in second Peter chapter three, we read. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. There is a judgment coming, and God has promised to bring judgment. His standards have not changed. He still expects perfection in his kingdom, and he is going to clean up all of the mess and remove all of the sin, there will be a judgment day. A while ago, Glenn Cole and I talked about this question, does God expect us to be perfect? And the answer is yes, he does. And he is making us perfect. And as we abide in him and walk with him and rest in him and allow his grace to do its work, he is going to be purifying us, boiling off all the junk Removing all the impurities, so that ultimately we will be this pure, spotless bride presented to him on the judgment day. And there is a judgment day coming. And the scriptures are very clear that God promises that many people will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. As a matter of fact, the way to destruction is very broad, pretty easy to walk on. And the way to eternal life is pretty narrow, and not many find it. Now, many are called, but few are chosen. And yet, as we just read in 1 John, if we confess our sins, then he is faithful and he will forgive us of our sins and he will purify us from all unrighteousness. So just in closing, I want to remind you, I want to remind us that our faith is not in our weakness. Our faith should not be in our ability to hear well because we don't have a good ability to hear well. Our faith is in him. Our faith is in his strength. Our faith is in his character. Our faith is in his promises. Our faith is in him. Well, my friends, until next time, I pray that God will continue to reveal to you his will and his ways and himself. Because his ways are always good. And they always lead to peace for the soul. Amen. Jesus said to his disciples, Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Thank you for listening, and God bless you all.